0: Parshas Nitzavim has 40 verses and zero mitzvos, And it begins, you are standing today, all of you, before Hashem, your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your small children, your women, and your proselyte who is in the midst of the camp, from the hewer of the wood to the drawer of your water. Rashi tells us that Moshe had gathered the nation on the day of his death. So from here on, the rest of the Torah is all events that are happening on the day of Moshe's passing. The whole book of Deuteronomy covers only the last 37 days of Moshe's life. Now we're on the final day, and Moshe is conveying his message to the people. And he begins by telling them that you're all standing here together, the men, the women, the elders, the regular folk, everyone's here together to hear this message, to hear this covenant that the Almighty is going to make with you As I am about to pass. Now all the commentaries spend a lot of time trying to figure out why Moshe preface his remarks by telling them, you are standing. So simply put, it means that he's telling them, you know, you're here, you're gathered, you're standing together to hear this message. But the commentaries offer a variety of other explanations as to why Moshe tells him, You are standing today, all of you before Hashem, your God. So Rashi quotes a midrash that the implication here is. That you are still standing before Hashem, your God. Last week's Parsha, the Jewish people heard all the curses, all the admonition, all the maledictions of what's going to happen to them if they disobeyed God, if they stray after the idols, if they depart from the ways of the Torah. And their faces turned ashen. They felt that they were doomed. So Moshe begins this week's Parsha by comforting them. Yes, you heard all those curses. But you know what? You're still standing despite all the sins that warranted your destruction. Over the course of the past 40 years, there's been all kinds of times where the Jewish people angered God and maybe you would have thought that those actions warranted the Jewish people being destroyed. But you know what? You're still standing and therefore that's comfort that you'll still be standing in the future. And Rashi adds a very deep idea. Not only... Are you standing despite the admonishment, despite the curses that we read in last week's parasha? But quite the contrary. The admonishment, the curses themselves are the cause for the continuity and the survival of the nation. It's a very powerful idea here. When God, so to speak, curses us, when God causes us to suffer, that actually stabilizes the nation and ensures its perpetuation. And I think this is a central idea in Jewish philosophy and certainly a retrospective of of Jewish history. When bad things befall our nation, as it's happened numerous times over our history, a lot of people wonder, you know, why does God do that to us? Why are we the recipients of so much national collective pain and suffering? And here we find a perspective here in Rashi that the suffering that our nation endures and has to go through actually is the key to our survival. Yes, we have gone through all kinds of hells as a nation, and Moshe tells us we're still standing, and now, thousands of years later, Rashi is telling us, but I think it's true still today, that actually all that suffering made sure that we'll survive as a nation. If we did not have all that pain, all that suffering, all the torment that our nation had experienced, we probably would have dissolved as a nation and ceased to exist entirely. So those are several reasons that Rashi gives. Rashi adds another interpretation as to why we're standing, and he explains that the Jewish nation was standing at attention for the transfer of power. This is the last day of Moshe's life. This is the last day of Moshe's reign as the leader of the Jewish people. Starting the following day, there's a new leader, and that is going to be Joshua. And therefore, Moshe gathered the nation— made them stand at attention in rank to encourage them, to coach them that now, from now on, it's not going to be me, it's going to be Joshua, and the whole nation has to accept that transfer of power. Rashi adds, when Joshua died, he did the same thing, when Samuel died, he did the same thing, when there's one leader giving over power to the next one, it's important for everyone to be privy to that transfer, and thus the transition, be more smooth. The Rebbeinah offers two additional explanations behind the meaning of the word, you are still standing. And he he explains that Moshe has given us two promises. Number one, that our nation will always stand and will always survive and will always endure. In addition, says the Rebbeinah Bahai, Moshe is promising them in this, verse, that not only will they stand in this world, but via the observance and the study of Torah, they will merit eternal life in HaBa in the afterlife. And the reason why Moshe has to promise the Jewish people about that is because they just heard all these terrible curses and admonishment of what happens if they disobey the Torah. And therefore Moshe comforts them and says, you're going to stand, you're going to be erect. In this world, but as a result of these curses and how it's going to keep you in check and how it's going to cleanse you from your sin, you're going to be meriting life in Olam Abba. And he explains, you're standing before Hashem, your God. When does someone truly stand before God? That's after the soul has departed their body. The soul has been liberated from their body and their soul can stand before God. And all of you are standing, that is hinted to the fact that all of the Jewish people, everyone has a portion in Almaba, has a portion in the afterlife, has a connection to eternity via their souls. So these are five or six different explanations as to why Moshe begins his final message by telling the Jewish people they are standing before Hashem, their God. And he lists all the people that are there. There's the old people, the officers, all the men, the women, the children, the proselyte, and then he says, from the hewer of the wood, the woodchopper, to the water carrier. So Rashi tells us that who are these woodchoppers and water carriers? These are Canaanites that came to convert in the times of Moshe, just as the Gibbonites came to convert in the times of Joshua. In the times of Joshua, a nation called the Gibbonites made believe that they were traveling from a great distance and they tried to convert And because they tried to convert under somewhat questionable circumstances, Joshua made them water carriers and woodchoppers to make them into this class where they're kind of held at an arm's length. And similarly, Rashi tells us that in the times of Moses, Canaanite people came to convert, and Moses made them into woodchoppers and water carriers. Now, the Midrash adds that Moshe did not convert them but created this permanent underclass of people that are part of the nation, so to speak, but not really fully part of the nation. The Ramban understands that these were not Canaanite converts, rather these were Egyptian converts, and these are the leftovers of the mixed multitude, the Egyptians that joined the Jewish people in their exodus. Okay, so everyone's gathered, and everyone's there, and what's the purpose, what's the objective of this gathering? To pass in the covenant of Hashem, your God, and into his apprecation that Hashem, your God, seals with you today. There's going to be a covenant. There's going to be a bond. There's going to be a treaty that Moses is going to oversee between God and the Jewish people on this day. Why? In order to establish you today as a people to him and that he be a God to you as he spoke to you and as he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. The Jewish people have a special connection with God. It began, of course, with Abraham and to Isaac, and to Jacob. There's a pledge that he's going to be our God, but we're going to be his people. There has to be a mutual understanding here, a mutual agreement, a mutual commitment, the Jewish people to God, and God to the Jewish people, and there's going to be a covenant, a sealing of this treaty today, on Moses' final day. Now, the commentaries note that there already was a covenant between the Jewish people and God at Sinai. In fact, in Exodus 24, there's a very elaborate ceremony of this agreement of the covenant between the Jewish people and God, and why is there a need for a second covenant? So rabbi Bachai he explains that, yes, the Jewish people had a covenant with God from Sinai, but 40 days after the Sinai experience, the Jewish people sent the golden calf. And by doing that, they repudiated the covenant, they annulled it, they reneged upon their agreement, and therefore it's important for us to institute a second covenant to replace the one that was broken. The Ramban has a little bit of a different explanation as to why we need a second covenant. He explains that the first covenant did not include curses and maledictions. Yes, there was an agreement, but there wasn't an enforcement mechanism to the agreement. And therefore now the second covenant is just building upon the first one, but it's adding the the enforcement of the curses and the maledictions in the event that the Jewish people stray from Torah. Now, the Ramban, he speculates that maybe the same ceremony that was done in the first covenant was done over here. You may recall in Exodus 24, there was the ceremony where they did a sacrifice and they split the blood of the sacrifice in half. Half of it was sprayed on the altar. Half of it was sprayed on the Jewish people. That was the ceremony or part of the ceremony of the first covenant. That's when the Jewish people uttered the famous words, Na'asev Seven Ishma, we will do and we will listen. That was their acceptance of the covenant. And Raman speculates maybe they indeed did this again on this covenant, on this final day of Moses' life, but it doesn't need to mention it because it's talking about the covenant and obviously you'll know that whatever they did for the first covenant they did for the renewal of the vows, so to speak. Now, Moshe lays it out pretty clearly. He says that the objective of the covenant is to establish this relationship, the nation of the Jewish people, our religion, our people. We have a bond with God, but there's also consequences to that. Meaning that as a direct result of the fact that God committed himself to us, via what he swore to our forefathers, via what he committed to us, he is locked in, he can't swap us out for a different nation, and therefore, as a result of that, he has to ensure that we uphold our deal. We've gone beyond the point of no return. There's no way to undo this bond between the Jewish people and God, and therefore, we have to strengthen it because we have no other option. God committed himself to us, and therefore, we have to, whether we like it or not, ensure that we stay the course, that we maintain our commitment to him. And in the event that we stray from it, there's going to be godly intervention to make sure that this is a mutual, a bilateral relationship between the Jewish people and God. So that's the introduction to this covenant. And Moshe adds that this is not a covenant solely between the people present at that time and God, but all Jews throughout all of history, are part of this covenant. Now, not with you alone do I see this covenant and this imprecation, but with whoever is here, standing with us today before Hashem, our God, and with whoever is not here with us today, all of the Jewish people throughout all of history are part of this covenant. Now, the obvious question is, I was born in 1986. How can I be committed to the covenant that happened 3,300 years ago? How could the Jewish people who were not present at that ceremony, how could they be included? How could they be incorporated into that covenant? So the Rebbeinah B'chai gives two explanations. The first one is that the father is the root and the children are the branches. There's a connection between the forebears, the antecedents, and their progeny and their future children. And everything that erupts from the ground is rooted in the root that is subterranean. And therefore, because we have a connection to our forebears, we didn't just spontaneously arrive on this earth as a nation. Rather, we deduced from our forebears, from our antecedents. And therefore, because they pledged it, inherent in us is the commitment that they already did. We are the branches. They are the roots, the commitment that is present in the roots is present in the branches as well. That's the first explanation that he tells us. And then he adds something very powerful. He quotes from the Talmud that says that at this ceremony, wasn't just the people, it wasn't just the bodies, it was also the souls. Which souls? All the souls. All the souls that were created since the times of Genesis, since the beginning of the world, we're all present at that agreement at the covenant. Similar to Sinai, that like the Talmud tells us. At Sinai, it wasn't just the people that were there. It was all future generations, all the souls, including the souls of future converts, were also present at Sinai, says the Talmud in the book of Shabbos. Similarly over here, all the souls were present. And thus, even if we don't remember The commitment that we ourselves gave to God in this covenant, this agreement, our souls were there and therefore our souls can be on the hook to adhere to the terms of this covenant. And Moshe continues by telling them that there is a risk for people to maybe renege upon the relationship with God. For you know how we dwelled in the land of Egypt, how we passed in the midst of the nations through whom we passed. We've had a lot of experiences with all kinds of different people. And you saw their abominations and their detestable idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold that were with them. Perhaps there is among you a man or a woman, or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away from being with Hashem our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Maybe there was someone who was seduced by the pagan rituals and practices of the idolatrous nations that we have encountered. Perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with gall and wormwood, which is various harmful and and poisonous growths. And it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, he will bless himself in his heart saying, peace will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit thereby adding the watered upon the thirsty. What Moses is telling the Jewish people here is maybe there's people, individuals, families, or maybe even whole tribes that because of their exposure to the idolatrous ways of the nations that we've encountered, they've developed a taste and affinity for idolatry. And even though they're hearing all this warnings and all these curses about not following the idols, not following their ways, they'll say, you know what? I'm going to follow my lusts, my desires, but I'll be safe and nothing bad's gonna happen to me. What Moshe is telling them is that there's a risk because people have been exposed to the idolatrous ways of the people they've encountered, there's a risk of them following it. Now it's really interesting. In verse 16, Moshe tells them, and you saw their abominations and their detestable idols. Rashi explains, what does it mean? It means that these idols were as loathsome as rodents. And as execrable as excrement. Yet there is a risk that they'll be seduced and they'll turn away from God to follow the idols. And the obvious question is, if idolatry is so abhorrent, why is there a risk of people being seduced to follow it, to adhere to it? If they recognize that, that what we were witnessing as abominations is detestable idols, detestable things are not appealing. So why is there a risk of people following them? So I think there's uh, several ideas here. Number one is my grandfather said from his Rebbe, Rebbe Rucham that no one wants to be a pariah. Everyone wants to be admired. Everyone wants to be respected. Everyone wants to have a certain stature in the society that they live. And even in the eyes of people that aren't sophisticated, we feel an innate desire to be liked, to be admired in their eyes. And then he added, a primary force that guides a person in his life is the fear of being an outcast, the fear of being a pariah. And therefore, if the whole society is doing idolatry and we're the outlier, we're the outcast, even though the idolatry is detestable by any objective standard, there's still a risk because we're exposed, because we're in that society, and because we have an innate need. To harmonize our behavior with what's prevalent around us, there's the risk that even the things that are so detestable will become appealing in our eyes, and therefore we have to have this covenant. There's maybe another idea, and that is that once a standard has been violated, it becomes increasingly more acceptable and more normal. They talk about the four-minute mile, for example. No one was able to break the four-minute mile or the 10-second barrier until someone did it, once someone does the four-minute mile, it kind of changes the psychology and it can be done again with comparative ease. And that's the idea that once there's a standard that's been broken in the eyes of everyone, it becomes a thing of the past, a thing of ease. And that applies to the negative side as well as the positive side. What would be a huge scandal 50 or 100 years ago with respect to indecent exposure is today considered normal. What was deviant yesterday is cool and hip today. What was taboo in yesteryear maybe today to be viewed as free expression or art. Yes, the Jewish people, Moshe is telling them, what you're seeing is something nauseating, something abominable. You're looking at excrement and rodents. But once you see it, You've been desensitized. Once you see it, once you encounter it, you've been calloused. Maybe the next time, it won't look as offensive. And maybe sometime down the line, it will start to look appealing. There's a statement at the Talmud that we've quoted in the past. If you see a sota, a suspected adulteress, in her kilkula, which means in her disgrace, you should make yourself a nazir. Someone who abstains from wine. When you see someone who behaves in a potentially promiscuous fashion, you have to say, maybe it could happen to me, and you have to protect yourself by abstaining from wine. But the words of the Talmud are very precise. You see a, so- a sota, you see a suspected adulteress in her disgrace. Maybe if you see someone in their disgrace, maybe that would be enough of a prophylactic that you won't do the same thing. Yet our sages tell us, you see the sotan or disgrace? Yes, it's disgraceful by any objective standard. But when you see that, that kind of sin enters your realm of possibility. And right away you have to protect yourself from falling into the same mistakes that that person did a very deep insight for us that when we encounter something that's very bad, once it's in our field of vision, once something that we encountered, there's a greater risk now of us making that same mistake. There's a few interesting descriptions here in the verse. So for example, it starts off, perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with poisonous or harmful characteristics. There's a root that's sprouting something bitter. So there's a very famous Ramban here. The Ramban explains that it starts off with people that's hearts are turning to idolatry. Maybe there's someone who already believes in idolatry. Or maybe there is someone who will have a child, i.e. there is a root that's sprouting something bitter. Someone's going to have a child who will follow the ways of the idol. And it's already present in the parent. A very deep idea here. Maybe there is a root that's going to produce something bitter or poisonous. Even though the child has yet to be born, maybe there's a parent here who already has something corrupt in their root, so to speak, that's going to be manifested in their children. And he adds that no one will have corrupt children unless they themselves were corrupt to some degree on their own. A child is the emanation, is the outgrowth of the parent. If there's something messed up in the child, if something corrupt in the child, if something bitter in the child, then we know for sure that in the father, in the parent, there was something bitter as well. Now, it's very hard for us to extend this on a practical level because, you know, after all, Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac had Esau. So it's very hard for us to point fingers, but it's a very deep idea here that the children are an outgrowth and expression of the parents and the parents, maybe there's something corrupt with the parents. Maybe there is a root that is going to sprout something bitter. And then in verse 18, it says that maybe there's going to be someone who says, you know what, I'm going to follow my heart's content. I'm going to do all the sins. I'm not going to be worried about this covenant. And then it concludes, Leman svos thereby adding the watered upon the thirsty, adding the satiated upon the thirsty. What exactly does that mean? This is a subject that the commentators address. There's a very deep Ramban here where he talks about the insatiability of lust and a vicious cycle of self-inflicted unnatural desires. And he explains that the word Rava, which is translated here as watered, that refers to someone who has satiated their desires. Whereas the word tsumea, which means thirsty, that refers to someone who is lustful. When someone's lustful, they're called thirsty. And each plane's a very deep and very maybe counterintuitive point that capitulation to lust does not resolve the lust. It just moves the goalposts to the next level, to the next level of lust and I'll read it because it's such an important citation here. When there's someone who's satiated, they don't desire things that are bad for them. They don't desire things that are harmful. But a little bit of lust enters their heart, and they decide to capitulate to that lust, to give in, and to follow their desires. What happens then? So we would think that after someone, you know, they have a need, they have a desire, they have a craving, they have a lust, they fulfill it, now they're quenched. Now they're satiated. Now their desires have been fulfilled and their desires go away. Not so, says the Ramban. Instead, they're going to increase even more loss and more thirst for the things that they desired or even a little bit more. They'll start desiring new things that are beyond the things that they initially desired. And he gives an example. You have someone who is immersed in pursuit of promiscuity, but because they're so immersed in it, they're so lustful, that will actually cause them to have new kinds of lust for things that are more unnatural. Not only in matters of promiscuity tells us the Ramban, but in all kinds of lusts, this actually applies and quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us in two places that there is a small organ in man. If you feed it, it is starving. And if you starve it, it is satiated. Meaning that there's a certain organ within man that works in the opposite way that you would expect. Normally, if someone's hungry, you feed them. They're not hungry anymore. If someone is starved, and the more they get starved, the hungrier they get. Yet there is one area where the opposite applies. If you satiate it, it gets hungrier and hungrier. If you starve it, it gets more and more satiated. That is what is being Referred to here when it says adding the watered upon the thirsty. What this means is that someone who is following the way of the eight the evil inclination trying to fulfill all their desires, they assume it's going to quench the thirst? Actually, no. It's going to add the person who is satiated with the person who is desirous, is Lustful, because he will desire and he will lust and he'll be thirsty for the things that previously he was satiated for that. They're going to seek to quench the thirst and they will return thirstier still. So what's going to happen for people who do this? What's going to happen for the people that are going to depart from the ways of God, that are going to renege upon this covenant, that are going to follow the ways of the idols, that are going to pursue their lusts, and not try to curb them, Hashem will not be willing to forgive him. For then Hashem's anger and jealousy will smoke up against the man, and the entire curses written in this book will come down upon him. Hashem will raise his name from under the heavens. Hashem will set him aside for evil from among all the tribes of Israel. All the curses that are present in this book of the Torah are going to fall upon them. Not only will the curses fall upon him, they're going to fall upon the entire public, the rest of the nation. And people are going to be so disturbed by the destruction that's going to ensue, they're going to just wonder about it. Why did this happen? The later generation will say, your children who will rise after you and the foreigner will come from a distant land. When they see the plagues of the land and its illnesses with which Hashem has afflicted it, sulfur and salt and a conflagration of the entire land – a land that won't be able to be sown or won't have anything sprout from it, no grass will arise from it, like the upheaval of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone's going to wonder, for what reason did Hashem do this to the land? Why this wrathfulness of great anger? Moshe here is telling the Jewish people, God is promising in the event that people stray from Torah, there's going to be tremendous destruction, not just to the individual who behaves in a sinful fashion, but for the whole land. The land's going to be destroyed with sulfur and salt and a conflagration. Nothing's going to be growing in that land. And everyone's going to wonder. All the onlookers are going to be watching with amazement and saying, how do we explain this? Why did God do this? And they will say, they'll know the answer. Because they forsook the covenant of Hashem, the God of their forefathers, that he sealed with them when he took them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served the gods of others and prostrated themselves to them, gods that they didn't know. So God's anger flared against the land to bring upon it the entire curse written in this book. And Hashem removed them from their soil with anger, with wrath, and with great fury. And he cast them to another land as this very day. There's a promise here. In the event the people disobey the Torah, stray from God, deviate after the gods of others, the curses will befall them. Sulfur, salt, fire, destruction... Removal from the land, God's going to be angry at us, treat us with wrath, with great fury, and relocate us to a different land. There's an interesting chisconi here, one of the commentators on the Torah. He asked the question, why does it talk about sulfur and salt, a conflagration of the entire land? What's the significance of sulfur and salt? So he explains, That these two are opposites. One of them is the most fire retardant and one is the most combustible. And the lesson is here that in the event that the Jewish people obey the Torah, adhere to its edicts and dicta, well, then the Jewish people will be like salt. No fire will be able to consume us. Whereas in the event that the Jewish people stray from Torah, well, then the fire will consume them like sulfur. And this dovetails with an idea that we saw last week, that the spectrum, the scope of our accomplishment is very vast. When we rise, we rise very high, and when we fall, we fall very low. And I also think it's interesting here that there's an answer to the secret of Jewish misfortune over the years. Here we see the answer. Why did God do all these terrible things to us? Because we forsook the covenant of, of Hashem, we forsook the Torah, when we sinned, we followed the gods of others, and as a result of that, the Almighty removed us from upon our soil with anger, with wrath, with great fury, and threw us to a different land as this very day. The chapter ends, the hidden sins are for Hashem our God, but the revealed sins are for us and our children forever to carry out the words of this Torah. If you actually look in a Hebrew version of the Chumash, you'll notice that this particular verse, the final verse of chapter 29, it has 11 dots upon three of the words. So that's an interesting thing. We'll talk about that in a second. So what does this mean that the hidden sins are for Hashem our God, but the revealed sins are for us? So Rashi tells us that the people, you know, are asking the obvious question. One person is going to sin. Everyone's going to suffer. What could we have done about that? It's not fair to punish the public because of the sins of the individual. After all, this is one person that sinned, one person who was this bad root, one person who goes astray, and the whole land is going to suffer. It's not fair. I'm not responsible for the sins of my fellow man. And the answer is that, yes, indeed, that's true. The hidden sins of Hashem, our God. Indeed, when another person sins in a hidden fashion, I'm not aware of it, I'm not responsible for the sins that he does in private. However, the revealed sins, that's for us and our children, it's our responsibility to try to eradicate the evil within our midst. And you know what? If we don't do anything about it, if we sit around and fold our hands And say it's futile to do anything or I don't want to make any controversy. I don't want to rattle the boat. If we do that, then we are culpable like everyone else. And there's a very deep idea here underlying this mutual responsibility and codependence. We believe that our entire nation on a spiritual level, we're all part of the same whole. We all have one soul, one large collective national soul. That is the soul of the whole Jewish people. We have a mitzvah. Love your fellow as yourself. The commentaries explain. What does that mean? It means to recognize that in truth, on a spiritual level, we're really the same thing. We're really parts of the same thing. The only reason why I view myself as different than other people is because I view the world through the lenses of a body, through the lens of the etzahara. I don't realize that I'm a soul. If I did realize that I'm a soul, on a soul level, on that plane, we really are part of one whole. And therefore, one person sins. That blemish actually sullies my soul as well as his soul because our souls are united. And in fact, this idea plays a role in halacha. If someone else has a mitzvah that they have not yet fulfilled, but I have fulfilled that mitzvah, I can actually help them do theirs, because so long as they have not fulfilled their mitzvah, to a certain degree, I too have not fulfilled my mitzvah. Now, why are there the dots over the letters? So as a general rule, every time the Torah there's dots over the letters, it's curbing the full effect of those words. And Rashi tells us, quoting from the Talmud, that this rule that everyone is codependent, everyone's mutually responsible for their fellow Jewish brethren, that only begins once the Jewish people cross over the Jordan and they accept upon themselves the blessings and curses of Mount Gerizim, and Mount Abel, they read about last week. Only then are they bound to each other to this degree that the sins of one extend to the other and to the whole nation at large. Thus concludes chapter 29. Chapter 30... Begins to talk about the reclamation. So if 29 was about when things go south, what happens then? How do we reclaim ourselves? How do we restore the luster and the stature of the past? The Ramban gives us an introduction by telling us that this entire chapter is talking about the future. It's futuristic. It's talking about the messianic times and therefore they have not yet happened. I want to note The Ramban lived in the 13th century. I would say us today living in the 21st century. It's very hard for us to read it and not get the feeling that at least some of these prophecies have already been fulfilled or at least the groundwork has been laid for their fulfillment. The chapter begins, it will be that when all these things come upon you, the blessings of the curse that I presented before you, you will take it to your heart. You're going to absorb this lesson amid the nations where Hashem your God has dispersed you, and you will return unto Hashem your God and listen to His voice according to everything I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. This is a description of national repentance. We're going to suffer. We're going to take it to heart. And we're going to return to God, all of us, with all our heart and with all our soul. And it's important to note we're in the Season for repentance, here's a description of repentance. Repentance means to return to God. The famous teaching of the Talmud says repentance is great because it arrives all the way to the holy throne of glory, to the throne of God. When a person sins, they're creating barriers between them and God, and they are distancing themselves from God. Whereas when they repent, repentance is knocking down those barriers. It's shattering the things that separate us from God and restoring us to our most natural state of being in close proximity to God. Repentance is great because it brings a person all the way back to the throne of glory. So what happens after the Jewish people have this arousal of national repentance? Then Hashem, your God, will bring back your captivity and have mercy upon you and he'll return and gather you in from amongst all the people to which Hashem, your God, has scattered you. If you are dispersed, will be at the ends of heaven. From there, Hashem, your God, will gather you in. From there, you will take you. Hashem, your God, will bring you to the land that your forefathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will do good to you, make you more numerous than your forefathers. Hashem, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's an amazing description here of this restoration of the Jewish people. We're in exile. Things are going bad. We're following the bad examples of the people that we're surrounded with. We sin. We get punished. We suffer. We get dislocated. We're unstable. And we take the lesson to heart. And we decide it's time for us to return to where we came from, to go back to our origins, to return to Hashem our God. And we take the message home. And the Almighty is going to reciprocate that sentiment. He's going to bring us back. He's going to gather us from amongst all the nations that we're scattered in. We could be at the other ends of the heaven. God's going to take us back, bring us back to the land of Israel, bring us back to the land that our forefathers possessed and prepare us for the destiny of our nation. It's an interesting description here of of what happens here. God is going to circumcise our heart. There's a very deep point here. Our heart is a euphemism for our soul. The soul is really the key for our connection to God. The problem is it's covered. Like we said, there's barriers separating us, separating our soul, separating our heart from God. What's God going to do? God's going to circumcise our heart. He's going to remove the barriers that are blockading our connection to God and we're going to be restored to our natural state of being close to God. There's a very powerful Ramban here where he talks about what's going to change in messianic times. Today, of course, we believe that everyone has free will. You want to be righteous? You want to be a tzaddik? You can be righteous. You want to be a sinner? You could choose that as well. That is the natural state of the world today where everyone has the decision-making capacity to decide what kind of life to pursue. However, in the times of the Messianic era, choosing good will be natural. We're not going to desire the things that are not helpful for us, the things that are sinful for us, the things that are harmful to our soul. All that's going to be not desirable at all. We're going to be restored to the level, to the stature, of Adam before his sin, a state in which he was not desirous at all for good and bad. There was no internal conflict. And that's going to be our status in the Messianic era. And that is described here in the verse as the circumcision of the heart because lusts and desires and the interest in doing sin, it's akin to a foreskin on our heart, and that's going to be removed in the Messianic era. And Gilead, like the Ramban said earlier, the entire description here of what's going on here is a prophecy of the future era of the Messianic times. Today, of course, we have desires. Today, of course, we have conflict. Today, we have to choose between good and bad, between life and death. But in the future, there's going to be a time after our hearts are circumcised, there's going to be a time where we're not going to have that same conflict because we're going to naturally seek only good. And in those days, the verse continues, God is going to make all the curses fall upon our enemies. We're going to return and listen to his voice. We're going to do all his commandments. We're going to receive tremendous blessing in our children, in our livestock, in our land. God will rejoice over you as he rejoiced over our forefathers, provided that we listen to his voice observe his commandments, we're going to be living in that idyllic utopia. And Moshe continues by telling the Jewish people, for this commandment that I command you today, it's not hidden from you, it's not distant, it's not in the heavens that you may say, how can I go up to the heavens to get it, to perform it, to listen to it? It's not across the sea that would make us potentially say, who's going to cross over to the sea and take it to us so we could do it and listen to it? Rather, the matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart to perform it. Moshe is comforting the Jewish people by telling them that this commandment is very close to us. It's not in the heavens, it's not across the sea. It's in our mouth and it's in our heart to perform it. What exactly is he talking about? Which commandment is he talking about? So Rashi and the Ramban, they have a disagreement. Rashi says it's referring to Torah, to the study of Torah. The Ramban, he explains that no, it's referring to Repentance, that's a continuation of the previous theme that in the event that we do repent, in the event that we have this national reckoning of returning back to God, everything good is going to happen to us. We're going to be gathered in from all the nations. We're going to go back to the land of Israel. We're going to fulfill our destiny. And don't think it's so difficult. No, it's actually exceedingly easy for us to do that. It's in our mouth. It's in our hearts to perform them. The obvious question is, Repentance doesn't seem to be easy at all. Are we really so close to this mitzvah? Year after year, during these times, during the high holidays, it seems like we find ourselves in the same situation, repenting for the same sins that we did in previous years. What is the meaning of this verse here? That it's so easy for us to perform them? It's in our mouth, it's in our hearts, it's it's not difficult? And that refers to repentance? I think there's a deep insight over here. When someone repents, they're not transforming themselves into a new entity that hitherto has not existed. Repentance is returning someone to the way it always was. Repentance is something very natural. We are a soul, our soul is enveloped by a body. Our sages tell us that's like a garment. To our soul. Who we really are is our soul. Where does the soul come from? What's its origin? Its origins from heaven. Its origin is closeness to God. Going back to that state is just restoring ourselves to the natural state of our soul, to the state that our soul is most comfortable in. It's almost like we're a prodigal son who, after years of being far away from his father, returns home. Repentance is returning the soul to its place of origin, to its place of true comfort. And my grandfather, Blessed Memory, he suggested that really Rashi and Rabban are not arguing. Rashi says that this mitzvah he's talking about is Torah study, and the Rabban explains that it's talking about repentance. Really, Torah study and repentance, both of them are about restoring our state of closeness, to God. The objective of Torah study is to make a person close to God. The objective of repentance is to make a person close to God. Both of them are our natural state. Both of them are close. And though they seem like they're distant, though they seem difficult, that is part of the fiction spun by our Yetzirah. There's a famous teaching in the Talmud. The Talmud says that before child's born, the child knows all of Torah, but as they're born, they forget it all instantly. The insight behind that is that before someone comes to this world, they have not yet been influenced by the Yitzhah And consequently, their soul is in a state of, of unadulterated purity. And the soul in that state knows all of Torah innately, even without being taught. The soul's close to God. The soul is replete. It's bursting with Torah. And when we repent and we study Torah, we're actually going back to a more natural state than the one that we are born into. The parsha ends. Moshe places before the Jewish people the two options that they have before them. See, I have placed before you today the life and the good and the death and the evil. There's two choices. There's only two choices. There's the good, there's life, and there's death, and there is evil. What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of priorities do you want to have? Are you going to live your life as a soul? Giving your soul life in this world and ensuring that it has continuity and vitality in the natural world? Our say, just tell us that a righteous person is alive even after they pass. By connecting someone to Torah, they're connected to the root of all goodness, to the root of all life. And even after their body and soul have separated, their soul still is influenced by the life and the vitality of the Torah that it absorbed. Whereas someone who is wicked, says the Talmud, even when they are alive, they are truly dead. That's the choice that Moshe presents to people. What kind of life do you want to live? I place before you the life and the good and the death and the evil. What is the life that which I commanded you today to love Hashem your God, to walk in His ways, to observe His commandments, His decrees, and His ordinances? Then you will live and you will multiply. Good equals life. But if your heart will stray and you will not listen and you are led astray and you prostrate yourself to the gods of others and you serve them, if you choose the other option... I will tell you today that you will surely be lost. You will not lengthen your days. If you choose the evil, you are in effect choosing death. And Moshe ends his message, I call heaven and earth today to bear witness against you. I have placed life and death before you, blessing and curse, and you shall choose life so that you will live, you and your offspring, to love Hashem your God, to listen to his voice and to cleave to him, For he is your life and the length of your days to dwell upon the land that Hashem swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. The heavens and the earth are witnesses to this offer. Do you want the good? Do you want the life? Or are you going to make the unfortunate decision to choose the evil and consequently to choose death? Rashi tells us the heaven and earth are there. They're witnesses. They're permanent witnesses. The heaven and earth were there when Moses spoke to the Jewish people 3,300 years ago. They're here today, and they're still standing witness that we were warned, fair and square, clearly and simply and succinctly, that we had this choice before us, and our choices and the consequences of the choices are attested to by the heaven and earth. Rashi adds that there's a lesson that we could take from the heaven and earth. The Almighty is telling us, look at the heaven. Look at the earth. Did they change their practices? Did they not obey the will of God? Every day, you look towards the east and the sun rises and gives light and gives warmth to the whole world. Look at the earth. God created the earth to be there to aid us. You plant and you know what? Year after year, season after season, the earth obliges. Did you ever plant and nothing grew? Did you ever plant wheat and barley grew? The earth obeys my instruction. The heaven does too. And you know what? If they obey God's instruction, do they get reward? No. If they sin, do they get punished? No. Nevertheless, they didn't change. You, God tells the Jewish people, If you do good, you get reward. If you sin, you get punished. All the more so should you abide, should you obey to the will of God. The Ramban, he reminds us that at the beginning of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, Moshe had again called the heaven and earth to stand witness to his promise that the Jewish people will surely be destroyed if they follow the ways of idolaters. And here, these very same witnesses, at the end of Moshe's message, like witnesses brought in to sign at the end of the document, they are brought in again to finish up or to, to, to bear witness for the end of Moshe's promise for his reminder to the Jewish people that they have two options. They have goodness and they have life. They have death and they have evil. And Moshe warned them to choose life. I thank you all for listening. It was a great pleasure to study the Parsha with you every week during this year. I wish you a wonderful, happy, healthy, sweet new year. My email address is rabbiwobijimot.com. I look forward to hearing from you soon and to speaking again next week.